Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, The Hemonk Podcast. We're coming at you from Rouleau University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we talk about a... Oh, well, you know, I'm also guilty of this, so I think I can say this. A very commonly ignored issue that all of us will see at some point in our medical careers. Anemia. I know Dan is jumping for joy right now. You can't see it, but I can see it on camera. And let me tell you, this guy's excited. I'm barely able to contain myself. Uh, It's going to be hard to not totally ramble throughout this entire thing. I just, I just love anemia so much. We'll contain Dan. Don't worry. Post editing, there'll be. If if you if you left this the uncut, Dan going on his own version, this would be like a a, at least a two hour episode. Let's be real. Hours on the cutting room floor (laughs) for sure. Um, but you know, guys, just before we start, I was, I actually just finished cooking dinner and I was running short on time. So I did a breakfast for dinner sort of situation in the interest of time. So that got me thinking, what's like your go-to brunch food? Cause I'm a big brunch proponent. Man, I think I always try and just do something that it would be challenging or at least very irritating to make on my own so i'm a benedict guy um between poaching an egg and making a hollandaise sauce i mean that's that's a lot that's a lot of work and so i'd rather have someone else do that for me and you never want to know what goes into the hollandaise sauce too i mean that's also true (laughs) (laughs) it's really good though i love eggs benedict (laughs) yeah it's like how many forms of saturated fat can you put into one sauce but man is it delicious so good I, I've made it a point to get the huevos rancheros at any restaurant that I go Ooh. to. I don't. I. I just. I think tacos are the greatest food, and this is like the closest to a breakfast taco that you could find on any menu. So, huevos rancheros for sure. But I also didn't make that today because that also takes way too much time. So, yeah, yeah maybe next time. Yeah, you know, I, I. I like how we're all savory people here. You, you know, my item is is also a savory item. I'm, I'm an omelet kind of a guy, you know? I, I go with their specialty omelet. I'm, I'm okay with a little bit of greens in there, too. I'll, I'll have a little side salad with my omelet. feel like I'm being healthy, but I always add some potatoes. You know, you always got to get that oh, side. You got to get the breakfast potatoes. You gotta They're the it. best kind of potatoes. You if you're going to do it, it you got to do it right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, guys, I think we should get moving on to the show and, and take our listeners down this awesome journey through anemia. So listeners, get ready. It's going to be a good one. Today, I think I wanted to talk a little bit about anemia. And I will say that I'm just as guilty as I think it's safe to say most doctors are of kind of dismissing anemia whenever they see it, especially when it's kind of in that like higher range, but still in an abnormal range. And we kind of just write it off. But as I'm learning more and more, if it's not in a normal range, it's not normal. And there are normal ranges for a reason. So I was hoping to talk about a case that I got a stat page about the other morning at four o'clock in the morning, I should add. And so I was hoping that maybe you guys can help me work through this a little bit. 
So this was a case of a, of a patient. He was only 25 years old that had come into the emergency room, really no past medical history at all. And also, I should mention, had never been to Rouleau University Medical Center. So we didn't have any outpatient workup. He was, had several days of, you know, nausea, vomiting, really just wasn't feeling well. And I was consulted because he had a hemoglobin that came back of 9.1. And so, understandably, the emergency room and the team that was admitting him were nervous as to, you know, why this 25-year-old was otherwise without a medical history had this hemoglobin of 9.1. And so, they, they needed some help with this workup. And so, I was, I was wondering, in a situation like this, what would be your approach? Yeah, you know, like you said, there's a ton of different frameworks out there that we use to try and categorize anemias. And I I think those are those are fine to to learn as you're trying to build your differential diagnosis and certainly there are some that I find more useful than others. But the most important feature of any anemia case for me is the acuity. And and what I mean by that is how quickly did this anemia develop? And so I, I approach a, a patient it can be the same hemoglobin level, and I'll push, approach patients very differently based on how rapidly it developed. A stable hemoglobin at 10.4 over the course of several months is a totally different problem than a hemoglobin at 10.4 if the it was 16.2, uh, you know, a couple of days ago. And so that that's always my starting point. And once I kind of sort that out and figure out how worried I am about this patient based on how rapidly this anemia is developing and how rapidly I think it's going to continue to progress. At that point, I'll start to think about, you know, how, how do I want to approach this? But what are the sort of things that you that you worry about when when the anemia gets more severe? Well, well, you know, the thing that we always learn in residency, if it happens really quickly, I guess uh, part of that issue is why is it happening that quickly? And of course, the sequelae of having a hemoglobin that drops very quickly or into a, into a dangerous range. So we worry about things like, um, cardiac issues, essentially, uh, lack of blood flow to vital organs. I think that's the biggest concern that we have to worry about. Exactly. And it can be important to try and assess those, those measures of end organ dysfunction as well. And another really important thing about just breaking down th- what Dan said that we talked about in the thrombocytopenia episode is the whole idea that acuity is one of the most important things when it comes to these any of these bloodline abnormalities. When we're thinking about a low blood count, if it's been chronic for a long period of time, we're less worried about it. If it's an acute drop, we're a lot more worried about something's going on. When I think about acute drop in red blood cells, I think you're either bleeding somewhere or you're hemolyzing it from somewhere. And, and those are the two most concerning causes where of, of an acute drop. There are other things that we'll talk about, uh, like dilutional and things like that. But, but if you were just trying to learn why, what causes an acute red blood cell drop, always remember those two things. Are you losing blood or bleeding from somewhere or are you hemolyzing it for some odd reason? You know, whether that's uh, autoimmune or some other reasons why you're hemolyzing blood. And, you know, sometimes you may not have that acuity data. Um, if you don't, if you're just seeing a patient for the first time and they don't have the convenience of having several days worth of labs, uh, before, before you saw them, um, the other most important thing as is the case with any, uh, lab abnormality or, or sort of count abnormality in particular is exactly how bad is this anemia sort of severity? Um, how would you guys, do you guys have any like ranges that you think of, uh, when you're thinking of different severities of anemia? 
you know, the big thing for me is that we, we always know when to transfuse. If the hemoglobin is less than seven, we, we've always learned, hey, give them a blood, give them a unit of blood. If the hemoglobin is less than eight and they have cardiac issues, we say, hey, go ahead and give them a unit of blood. But I, I really want to know how you think about it, Dan, because you're, you are the red blood cell expert. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think anyone can look up a normal range and, and there are arguments to be made as to whether or not we should be really rethinking these gender specific normal ranges. But below the normal range, sort of hemoglobin above 10, but still below the normal range, I'm, I'm certainly a lot less excited, again, unless it developed very rapidly. Uh, and I have reason to believe that it's going to continue to drop. That seems like you've kind of got some time to figure it out. And, and usually the patient won't really even be all that symptomatic, especially if it's developed chronically. When you're looking at range between 7 and 10, again, that's above the transfusion threshold for the majority of patients. And at this point, the patient may not be feeling all that great. But you still have a, a little bit of time to sort of try and figure out exactly what's going on. The range between, I'd say, about four and a half grams per deciliter and seven, that's a, a more scary range to me. Uh, these tend to be your sickest patients because an anemia to that level can develop very quickly and still be survivable. And so, you know, oftentimes, again, you're, you're thinking about getting them a transfusion, trying to support them, but you have to think really fast about what might be going on and causing it so you can stop it from getting worse. And I think that is so important, what Dan just said, that that range for us to remember that if there's an acute drop and it's four and a half to seven, we that that's when we start to really think they're bleeding or they're hemolyzing if, if that happened pretty quickly. I mean, that's something you have to rule out uh, because it's survivable, but you're getting to the point where you could have major end organ dysfunction. Yeah, the patient can be in a lot of trouble. Sir, for the more extreme uh, anemias and these sort of rare cases when you might find someone with a hemoglobin between, like, say, one gram per deciliter and four and a half, I think the lowest I've ever seen was 1.3 grams per deciliter. These almost always have to develop over an extended period of time. If, if somebody has dropped that low, it's very unlikely they're going to be conscious and talking to you if that developed quickly. But, you know, I've seen a patient with a hemoglobin of three who was just very pale and, and very tired, but able to talk to us and have a normal conversation. These are almost always chronic blood loss or a chronic nutritional issue such as a severe folate deficiency or severe B12 deficiency over a long period of time, or a, a slow bleed from a colon cancer that causes a, a chronic iron deficiency anemia. But patients can bleed down over time to very, very low levels. You know, essentially what you're saying, similar to our discussion of the thrombocytopenia episode, it's all about time course, you know, really trying to understand what is the, the rate at which this drop occurred. And in the event that we don't necessarily have this information, you just have to use kind of your spidey senses to decide, you know, and stratify where they kind of fall. Are they greater than 10? Are they 7 to 10? Are they 4.5 to 7 or even lower? And depending on the degree of their anemia, figure out, you know, what step to take next to work them up appropriately. I mean, I guess... You know, I think it's safe to say, if I'm extrapolating from what you're saying, in the absence of data in someone with a new anemia, when you have no understanding of baseline, it sounds like these acute anemias you have to rule out just just to be on the safe side. Absolutely. And, and your mention of baseline is so, so important because you can have patients with a hemoglobinopathy, um, like a sickle cell disease, who have a baseline hemoglobin in the sixes, and, you know, they could drop to some of these ranges that we say have to develop over time. They, they could drop to that range quickly. So keeping the patient in uh, patient context in mind is, is very, very important. 
Going along with what Ronick just said, that we have to think about that an acute blood loss is happening or an acute episode is happening when we don't have a baseline, there, there are a lot of things that we can do on the physical exam and the history that are incredibly important. One of the most important things is, are you bleeding from, from anywhere? Do you have melana or hematochesia? Is, is it a GI bleed, most common thing that we see? Are you having major hematuria? But in order to get a, a big hemoglobin drop from hematuria, that patient isn't just going to have red-tinged blood. They're going to be having really chunky hematuria. I mean, we're, we're talking passing clots. It's not just a little bit of blood. It's like a drop of blood can make that Foley bag completely red or pink, which I never really understood until I maybe about four to maybe six months into interneer, which shows how smart I am as a person. But, you know, it's tough. You, you, when, when you don't see these things often, it's easy to just kind of say, oh, that must be the cause of their anemia. But uh, again, taking that thorough history is, is incredibly important. And the other thing that's really, really, really important is doing a thorough skin exam to look for bruising. This blood can hide. You know, we think about major compartments where the blood can hide. One of the things that we always think about as hematologists, if we see an acute blood drop, blood loss, is we want to say, hey, is there a retroperitoneal hemorrhage going on? Do they have bruising on their flanks? Did they bleed into their thighs for some reason? That compartment can hold a lot of blood. And those are the two, I would say, most common things that we think of. But major bruising somewhere in the body should tip your head that, hey, is this patient bleeding for some reason? And so if that's the case, then, um, Dan, you know, what is your general approach? Like, what's your what's your recipe for workup for these, what may be a, an acute process? I'll, I'll just list one more thing real quick that can cause an acute drop. And it's probably the only thing on this list that isn't really a big deal in terms of a hematologic workup. Patients can be remarkably hemoconcentrated when they first come into the hospital. What I mean by that is just very dehydrated. You know, they may have a hemoglobin of 13 when they hit the door, and then they get three liters of, of crystalloid resuscitation and their hemoglobin drops to eight or something, you know. And, and so there can be a pretty dramatic fall in hemoglobin related to fluid resuscitation, but that should be a diagnosis of exclusion. That has to be, you know, after you've worked everything else up and you can maybe explain it away with that, then, then I guess you could go with that. But in terms of working up these acute drops in blood, you got to send off sort of a, a fairly consistent package of things every time. Just like with our, our thrombocytopenia, I always send off a smear. Things that cause thrombocytopenia can also cause anemia, things like TTP, where the blood is getting shredded in the vessels by tiny little blood clots. And you'll also see evidence of other blood breakdown processes like G6PD deficiency in a hemolytic crisis or, you know, overdose of certain medications that can cause blood to break down. They'll, they'll have characteristic findings on a blood smear. Sending off an LDH is very important. The LDH will typically be sky high, higher than the six, seven, eight hundred than if, if blood is actively breaking down. A DAT or a Coombs test can help identify a, an autoimmune cause of hemolysis, of hemolytic anemia. And uh, a type and screen, that's something that usually is getting sent off when a patient is very anemic, just to see if, you know, if they're going to need blood, just to know what their type is going to be. But as a part of that, you get what's called an antibody screen, looking to see if they have any alloreactive antibodies, antibodies that might make it challenging to match a unit of blood with them. In certain cases of, of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, that antibody screen may come back positive and give you kind of an early hint that there's something autoimmune happening to this person's blood. 
Haptoglobin is another thing that's commonly sent off. That's a very sensitive marker for blood breakdown. It's basically a protein in the blood that helps scavenge free hemoglobin, which is a very reactive and, and can be harmful substance when it's just free in the bloodstream. And it drops quite quickly when, when there's been breakdown of blood. But there's a lot of situations when it can be low. It's produced by the liver. So if the liver isn't working, it's going to be low. If somebody just got transfusions and then they get their haptoglobin sent off, oftentimes there's free hemoglobin in a, in a unit of packed red cells, and that will also drop the haptoglobin. So you can take it with a grain of salt, but it's an important part of the workup. A reticulocyte count, that helps you know if you're sort of in a hypoproductive type of anemia or if the person's putting out tons of reticulocytes and their blood counts are still dropping, that tells you something too. That can, that can point you towards hemolysis as well. And lastly, on your exam, just checking the patient's abdomen for for an enlarged spleen you know most patients will usually be able to tell you if they have some inherited problem that causes their blood to break down frequently something like an inherited spherocytosis or um, other sort of red cell enzyme deficiencies but maybe if they're sick enough they might not be able to tell you and these folks will often have an enlarged spleen uh, because their spleen is busy eating up damaged red blood cells for their whole life and those are the things I usually start with. But the LDH, haptoglobin, reticulocyte count, that trifecta is pretty critical when you're trying to figure out if hemolysis is happening. And another thing I just wanted to comment on with that, because that's that's a, a, a great workup that we should be doing in these patients that we're suspecting an acute anemia, is that DAT test can be a false positive. So if you just keep that in mind that just because the DAT is positive, that doesn't mean that hemolytic anemia is happening. So it's an important test that can help us, but there are high false positive rates with the test. So that's why getting that that smear is so important because not only are we looking for those fragmented broken down cells like we talked about in the thrombocytopenia episode, there's schistocytes or helmet cells, or all those are just synonyms for each other, essentially. We're also looking for things called spherocytes or spherical-looking cells, which I used to think only happened in hereditary spherocytosis. But that also happens in autoimmune hemolytic anemia because you have an antibody bound to that red blood cell, and it's it's like a piece of that red blood cell is being, being eating off, and then the red blood cell reforms into a spherical shape. So you see lots of spherocytes. So a DAT-positive test alone doesn't diagnose autoimmune hemolytic anemia. You have to look at it in the context of the whole picture, that LDH being high, the reticulocytes being elevated, the smear showing spherocytes, and that haptoglobin being very low. So it has to fit the right clinical context when we think about some of these tests. So just to circle back on the case, I wanted to kind of bring you all up to speed about what that workup entailed. Based on what we talked about, I actually ended up talking about this exact same thing with the attending that was on call. And so I'm going to share those results with you. So number one, I got a smear. And on that smear, I didn't see any schistocytes or anything like that, like we had talked about in our thrombocytopenia episode. But I did see these abnormal kind of circular looking cells that looked a little bit off. Granted, I'm not the best at reading smears, but I, they didn't look quite normal to me. So, you know, the rest of the workup did show a positive DAT, which was kind of cool, but kind of scary because I'd never had a positive DAT test but come back before. We had an LDH that was 1200. We had a haptoglobin that was undetectable at less than eight, a reticulocyte count of 12%. And then on the CMP, I saw that we had an elevated bilirubin up to four. And so that was also equally concerning and it was mainly indirect in nature. 
And I think, you know, putting all of this together and from what, and also what I'm assuming now in retrospect on that smear were probably spherocytes. We had diagnosed this patient with an acute hemolytic anemia. And we'll talk more about that in a future episode. This is a perfect case because you see that this DAT is positive, but the patient has all of the signs of hemolysis. And again, if you just ran a DAT and everybody that walked through the door in the hospital, 10 to 20%, you'll have a false positive. So the clinical correlation is so important. And that's why going through the workup that Dan had laid out is key and critical for these acute anemias. Fantastic. Now, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit, Imagine, guys, this exact same patient came to our outpatient office and, you know, the PCP had been following this patient very closely because he had noted a slowly downtrending hemoglobin over a period of time. And now it hit 9.1 and he gets a referral over to hematology. So again, 25-year-old patient, no significant past medical history, hemoglobin of 9.1. Where do we go from here? Sounds like the same case, but you know, I feel like our approach is probably going to be very different. I know typically we we can break these down into things like MCV and things like that, but again, any sort of framework to better understand how to do this and why we do this would be extremely helpful. I think Dan explaining to us what an MCV really means and because we, you know the the framework that you can get from anywhere, from any textbook, really from anybody is just that you have microcytic anemias, you have normocytic anemias, you have macrocytic anemias. But actually understanding why it's microcytic and why it's macrocytic, I think is incredibly helpful. And Dan taught this to me, I think two days ago or something. So it's it's incredibly helpful. So Dan, take it away. Sure. Yeah. I, I do find that the sort of dividing and dissecting these anemias by the MCV, by the mean cellular volume of a red cell, is probably the most useful I've found when I'm trying to work an anemia up. And I remember asking in med school during the hematology block, you know, wh- why are these cells larger or smaller based on these different etiologies of anemia? And uh, if I remember correctly, I was told at the time, oh, we, no one really knows why that's the case. No, that is not, that is not true. The great Mark Decoury, he's a fantastic hematologist here at, at Rouleau University, and he explained to me sort of what exactly is, is driving this, what's behind this. And the way I sort of describe it in broad strokes is that anything that makes it hard for the body to make heme or hemoglobin will cause a microcytosis. And anything that can cause difficulty with the cell cycle, so where cells have trouble replicating or replicating their DNA that will tend to cause a macrocytosis. And the reason for this is as these erythroid precursors are maturing, the cell cycle acts like something of a timer. And so the hemoglobin synthesis is tuned to produce hemoglobin at just the right rate to make a normal-sized RBC under a normal duration of a cell cycle. And so the longer the cell cycle, the more hemoglobin is produced and the larger the resulting red cell is. And the harder it is to produce hemoglobin, the less is produced over that time, resulting in a smaller cell. And it's important to remember that these the processes affecting these two sort of parameters can happen concurrently. So there's no reason why you can't have a process causing a macrocytic type anemia and a process causing a microcytic type anemia in the same patient, resulting in a more normocytic type anemia. Is it almost like they average out? That's exactly right. So they, they, they balance each other out. So basically, if you have a slow cell cycle and also limited heme or hemoglobin production, you know, that they make happen to be a normal cell at the end of the day. 
or normal size cell anyway. So with that framework, it, it really helped me kind of remember what's going to cause which type of anemia. So anything that makes DNA replication harder makes the cell cycle longer, right? So that's things like a primary bone marrow problem, like MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, something like the influence of chemotherapy or other medications that can inhibit DNA synthesis, like hydroxyurea, or an- even antivirals and antiretrovirals can do this. In fact, we often use the MCV as a marker of adherence to antiretroviral medications. The uh, vitamin and micronutrient deficiencies that are involved in DNA synthesis, that's your B12 and folate, copper, vitamin A, these sort of things, they'll cause a macrocytosis. And for some reason, the thyroid also does this, hypothyroidism. That one, I'm I'm a little unsure of the mechanism. I wanted to highlight one thing that Dan said, which is the copper level. That's one thing that when I was in residency, I would randomly send copper levels, truly. I would just think to my head, I don't know, maybe copper deficiency. And I would send a zinc with it because I didn't really know... Why are we sending zinc and why are we sending copper? And the reason is zinc excess can lead to a copper deficiency. So it's not necessarily that the zinc is causing the problem. The copper is the problem. And like Dan said, the copper is very important in this nucleotide synthesis and this DNA replication and and the cell cycle. And so just remembering that copper, B12, and folate are the three things that you really think about this macrocytosis. And all three of those things can also cause a pancytopenia picture because it affects DNA synthesis, not just heme. Yeah, and that's right. And so copper deficiency often will look kind of like a myelodysplastic syndrome with a sort of out of proportion preserved platelet count. You know, a lot of the reason it develops in the setting of zinc excess is because if somebody's taking like zinc supplements like crazy or they're on supplemental zinc because of poor wound healing or whatever the reason, zinc and copper sort of compete for the same uptake receptor in the gut. And as a result, with chronic zinc supplementation, you can end up with a with a copper deficiency. As far as things that make it harder to make hemoglobin, these these are things like low available iron, and that includes iron sequestration, as you can see in sort of anemia of chronic inflammation or other states where there's lots of hepcidin circulating. Hepcidin being a peptide hormone that regulates iron balance and, and tends to store iron away in the lymphoreticular system. Lead poisoning, that interferes with heme synthesis. One of those many enzymes in the heme biosynthesis pathway is interfered with by, by the presence of lead. Any micronutrient important for normal mitochondrial function, which is where heme is produced, it's really rare, but certain sort of B vitamin deficiencies in very severe forms can cause this. And then uh, the hemoglobinopathies. So that should be relatively apparent. If somebody has an abnormal hemoglobin gene, it's going to be hard for their body to make hemoglobin, right? So the, the, some of the most profound microcytosis that you'll see is related to things like thalassemia. I think the thing that's hardest for me is the normocytic anemia still. You know, I just, you know, it's something so easy to overlook, especially when that MCV looks right. You give yourself this false sense of reassurance. You know, of course, you could do some of these nutritional workups for for a normocytic anemia, but what else should you have on your differential then? It's almost always going to be multifactorial in, in the normocytic camp. You know, things that cause a macro and a microcytosis sort of balancing each other out in, in a concurrent fashion. But sometimes it's just that there isn't enough of a signal to make blood. And so in your patients with poor kidney function, particularly in those whose renal function has been declining over the recent past, and maybe they haven't connected with a nephrologist yet, they may not be producing enough EPO. Remember that the kidney is the site of erythropoietin production. And so that survival signal for early red cell precursors, the the erythropoietin that tells those red cell precursors to keep growing and keep producing blood, 
they uh, that's produced in the kidney. And so in, in kidney failure, people may need supplemental erythropoietin to maintain a normal hemoglobin. That's an important one. Uh, so oftentimes, if I'm kind of scratching my head, I may send off an erythropoietin level if I'm, I'm really at my wit's end. But it certainly, I wouldn't consider it as part of my initial workup. You know, you can also think about things that elbow their way into the bone marrow, something like a multiple myeloma or even a metastatic solid tumor. Sometimes those will end up causing a macrocytosis, but they can cause enormous anemia as well. So I think from what you're saying, Dan, um, in this case, for more of a chronic sort of anemia or something subacute in nature, we're going to be looking at, uh, first of all, getting a thorough history and, you know, doing things like a nutritional workup to ensure that they have the necessary building blocks to make their red blood cells and do that efficiently. I suspect that a smear would still be helpful in these situations. I think actually you've convinced me even more than I thought before about the importance of a smear. Because for instance, if you have this mixed picture, one can imagine there's going to be some variation in the size of those red cells that you can probably best appreciate on that smear, even if your MCV is in a relatively normal range, understanding now that that's an average. And then, you know, just wanting to understand, you know, again, what is the chronicity of all these labs? And I think that that will help drive kind of the the framework as to whether or not you need to do a workup for something infiltrative or or you know look into to kidney effects. But but I think you've you've convinced me that a good history and understanding the nutritional kind of situation for the patient is probably the best place to start. And you know I should mention one other thing that can have a pretty dramatic influence on the on the MCV, and that's the sort of the presence of a brisk reticulocytosis. So reticulocytes are the young red blood cells, and they're big. They are larger than a mature red blood cell. And so if somebody has had a recent bleed, for example, and you caught them right as they're recovering from it, and they have a lot of reticulocytes around, or if they have some chronic low-level hemolytic process that ends up causing a lot of reticulocytes to, to be around in their bloodstream, you'll see what looks like sort of an elevated MCV, but you'll also see that the what's called the red cell distribution width or the range in size of red blood cells will also be quite wide. And that can tip you off that maybe there's reticulocytosis. So reticulocyte count is still important in working up some of these chronic anemias as well. Another thing I wanted to add about the normocytic anemias is that in early iron deficiency anemia, you can have a normocytic anemia. And so it's really important that it's really important to understand this idea between behind heme synthesis and that low iron, you're having less heme synthesis, smaller cells. But if it's early iron deficiency anemia, your red blood cell lifespan is 120 days. So you're still going to have your old normal red blood cells floating around your circulation, and you won't see this microcytic anemia for a little bit of time. So early iron deficiency, you do not have to be microcytic. And I think that's a very, very important concept to understand. So guys, just to round out this case, so just to remind you all, 25-year-old gentleman, no past medical history, had a hemoglobin of 9.1, and a slowly downtrending hemoglobin over a period of time. We did a basic nutritional workup on him, and what we discovered was a significant folate deficiency. So I called the patient back to talk to him, and in the history, turns out he had just recently moved out from his parents' home and never really learned to cook. And he decided that, you know, as part of his quest to get 
major gains for the summer, he was going to go on a chicken breast and beer only diet. And so a long standing kind of consumption of only chicken breast for several meals a day and, you know, a beer or two per night. So he had a folate deficiency. Yeah. And, you know, that, that makes sense, unfortunately. Remember that folic acid is incredibly important for nucleotide metabolism. And without it, you can end up with such a dramatic macrocytic anemia, basically cells that are so large that they end up destroying themselves under their own weight even. And you can actually have hemolysis inside of the bone marrow as these cells are forming. And uh, so, yeah, with, with severe folate deficiency, you really do get a pretty profound anemia that's, uh, that's very markedly macrocytic. So, you know, I'm impressed. What was this guy's MCV out of curiosity? Uh, his MCV was actually 104. Yeah, it's not, it's not bad. So, yeah, very, very interesting case. Uh, I did. What did you guys do? Did you give him pill, folate pills or you just tell him, dude, eat some vegetables? Well, we went with the folate pills just to start. He really wasn't a big vegetable guy, but, um, you know, we, we encouraged him to start doing so. They got to stop putting folate in beer. That's how, great how many idea. of the world's problems this we solved? Is this our, our new marketing ploy, the fellow on call, folate supplementation uh, in beer? I mean, it'd be, it'd be the new IPA. <laughs> a new IPA. I like it. Foley ice. Yeah, that'll be good. All right, guys. Well, I learned quite a bit today. Number one, eat your vegetables. Listen to your parents when they tell you to eat your vegetables. But number two, for the purposes of this episode, you know, it's all about context, you know, understanding why our patients are anemic, making sure you're understanding the anemia and better trying to understand the anemia in the appropriate clinical context. It really is that history is so important with that chronicity as part of your first step. Thereafter, in a, in a situation where it doesn't seem to be chronic, i.e. it's acute in nature, really ruling out processes that are life-threatening. And then in a situation where it may be more chronic in, in nature, you have a little bit more time. And, and, you know, we often start with a nutritional evaluation and then start thinking about more esoteric things from there. And the biggest thing is to remember Dan's framework on why are cells small and why are cells big? And it's going to make all of this a lot easier rather than memorizing a list. And I think that wraps up another great episode. Guys, thank you for that fantastic discussion. I, I appreciate it as always. Yeah, anytime. All right, everybody. Until next time. See you later. See you later. Peace.